It was the American critic Joseph Kernan, of course, who notoriously <coughs> described Tosca as a shabby little shocker. And indeed, I think perhaps for an older generation, Maria Callas, on stage, of course, if you were lucky enough to see her, makes you very old, even older than me, um, and or hear her on disc, treated that judgment, I think, with the contempt it deserved. And then Moscow Kana wrote an extended analysis of, of, of Puccini with a neo-Freudian reading suggesting the composer was somehow driven to write operas that were all about torturing women, in particular his heroines, from Mimi to Butterfly by Florio Tosca. But surely there's absolutely no need to justify or to apologise for Tosca. It is quite simply a masterly music drama that keeps you on the edge of your emotional seat from the opening bars to that extraordinary final leap by the heroine from the battlements of the Castel Sant'Angelo. And of course it offers singers three of the meatiest roles in the repertoire. There's the diva, Floria Tosca, who's only lived for art and love and who now loves the painter Mario Cavaradossi, a Republican hoping that Bonaparte's going to liberate Rome from the King of Naples and his armies and to re-establish the banished Roman Republic. Thus, he's willing to assist Cesare Angelotti, who was consul of that brief-lived Roman Republic and who is now a political prisoner, who, as the opera begins, has just escaped from the Castel Sant'Angelo. And indeed escaped from the clutches of the villainous chief of police, Baron Scarpia, who, of course, lusts for Tosca. And so we come full circle and the plot is set. According to the libretto, the action of Tosca occurs in June 1800. However, Victorien Sardou, whose play furnishes the libretto, provides much more precise dates and generally productions of the opera follow or some follow those dates. His play, La Tosca, takes place in the afternoon, the evening and the early morning of the 17th and 18th of June 1800 at a very precise historical moment. The moment when Bonaparte defeats the Austrian armies at the Battle of Marengo and suddenly all of Italy lies open before him. More of that in a moment. We're joined this evening by a quartet of guests, by Nicholas Ansel Evans, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, and the, su the soprano, Suzanne Manuel, and they're going to perform music from Tosca. Also with us is Nicholas Sperling, the production manager for this Tosca, and Nina Brazier, who worked with the director, Catherine Malfitano, herself, of course, once an extremely distinguished Tosca and on television too in a production in which the whole uh, thing was live during a single day on location in Rome. Uh, she worked with Malfitano on reviving this production. Would you welcome, please, Nina Brazier. Either which microphone you can have, but why not that one? Um, I'm going to stand over here. Nina, um, had you worked with Catherine Malfitano before? No, and I hadn't actually come across her aside from seeing some of the clips from that um, famous uh, Tosca that was performed all on the day in Rome. So that's all I'd seen of her until, until the first day of rehearsals. Uh, when you come to work on a revival with a piece you've not seen, mm -hmm. um, but with a director you obviously know a little bit about, I mean, what, what, what's your role? What do you do? Generally, you have to just prepare a lot beforehand, so you will have watched the DVD and checked all the scores and all the blocking that the previous staff director has worked on. So you do your best just to learn off by heart what the production, what you're expecting the production to be, so that when you go into rehearsals, you're as well informed as you can be about what's going to happen. So that's the sort of beforehand. And then once you get into rehearsals, it's just essentially what the director needs in rehearsals. So you just have to facilitate the rehearsals for them, run the scheduling for them, just depending on what their needs are. So you just work around them. 
And is the revival an opportunity to have second thoughts? I mean, does, does it allow Catherine Malfitano, do you think, to, to rethink things? I think definitely, with the benefit of hindsight. She was sometimes would go home and watch the DVD and sort of say, I I'm not quite sure why I did that at that point. I'm not quite sure why this happened. So she could have the, have the possibility of redoing and remaking things in a new way. So definitely, I would say, you know, you have this time and the space just to just to have a look and, and decide anew what you'd like. And also with new people in it, you can you know, work out what works for them. And, and were these small changes, detail, or did you by and large notice she was making some quite radical uh, changes? There, there was some radical um, relighting actually. Um, that, that was the thing that probably took the most time. Um, not really radical restaging, but generally just to suit the performers and what worked for them in terms of their physicality and, and what, where, where they were comfortable with being and settling on the, on the stage and on the set. Um, but I wouldn't have said there were radical changes. We did. We removed a pillar from the set that made some, some difference, and we removed um, towards the end of Act Two a, a part of the set that's revealed at the end was was removed this time round just because we saw it without it and it looked really stunning. So we. My, my sense of seeing the dress rehearsal was that this is quite a political reading of Tosca. There's a sense in which we are constantly reminded that Angelotti is a political prisoner, but he does believe in the Republican ideals that presumably were uh, inspired, uh, if not Napoleon, as he's fighting Marengo, certainly inspired him in the French Revolution earlier. Um, in a sense, are you, were you aware that this was a more political reading of the, of the opera than is normally the case? I don't know. I guess for, from sort of my part, you notice the political side in terms of the characters and what, what each of their take is. And I, I guess, in a way, it's only a Tosca who's a completely non-political animal. She's a sort of political innocent in it. And straight away, we're confronted with um, Angelotti, who obviously he's the escapee, the prisoner at the beginning. And you realise immediately that he and Cavaradossi are on the same side and they're on this liberal side. And so you're sort of immediately conf confronted with with the political side from an individual point of view. And then just sort of as the opera goes on, it's sort of the event-led um, things that make you understand the sort of political background. But I suppose, I wouldn't say the production is necessarily a big political take on it, but, but you do, um, I suppose you are aware of each individual character and what, you know, and why they're against one another and what the, what the sort of clashes are between the characters. Um, it's living at the other end, so to speak, of, of the last century as we are now, um, from the, when the opera was written in 1900, um, a sense of, of the sheer viciousness of Scarpia's tyranny in the wake of the great dictators of the middle of the 20th century, Stalin, Hitler, uh, Mussolini, uh, Franco and others, mm -hmm. uh, becomes much clearer too, doesn't it? The element of sadism within yeah. tyranny. Yes, completely. And I guess as well that the, having the sort of face of being very polite and very gentlemanly and then underneath that sort of underlying nastiness just really comes across in, in this staging, I would say, yeah. Is there a sense also in which the Scarpia that you and Catherine Malfitano have found is actually a sexual deviant in some way, that his attraction to Tosca is not just that he adores her and wants her, there's something pretty nasty in the woodshed here? Do you know, I that's hard to say. It seems as a, as a character, he, he sort of comes across as so greedy in that, his big um, act two moment when he just sort of says there's different wines, different women, and he seems to want to indulge in all of it. And so it almost seems like a sense of, of him wanting to have something that is something that he can't have. So it seems to me a sort of sense of greed rather than, a, than an underlying. But I'm not sure. I'll have to watch it again with that in mind. I don't know. <laughs> 
And we know that baritones are always much more interesting in Italian opera <laughs> than tenors, but it really is quite a fight, isn't it, to make, um, you know, Cavradossi uh, uh, the fully rounded character that he needs to be. He doesn't really get a chance to reveal himself almost till the last act in his little final act aria. No, that's true, actually, that's true. Um, I guess he, we just have to sort of... That's all he's given, though, I suppose, in terms of the music and, and the libretto. That's all he's given. So we just have to sort of follow his journey along until it comes to its completeness in the end. Um, yes. I also love in this production the sense of, of detail with smaller characters. Spoleto mm -hmm. and the other kind of rather nasty, shady... Yes, and Spoleto, yes. Absolutely. I think but also, I just love the sacristan. Uh, and yes. you, you found lots of things for him to do in Act One, haven't you? Yes, he's, um, he's a real character, and Henry Waddington, if um, any of you know him, he's a character in himself, but they've really worked hard and, and, and developed his role, I think, into something really enjoyable. And they've actually given him a little a young boy, an assistant, so it gives him somebody to talk to instead of having to constantly be young jabbering on to himself. Um, that really, I think it really helps um, from my point of view, yeah. And we shouldn't give it away, but he's got a wonderful little bit of business too, okay. which we shouldn't give away, but it's, it's wonderfully played, I think. Yes, he, he sort of puts himself forward as this very religiously correct person, but then at the end of the day, he's constantly trying to steal someone else's food and, and that sort of thing. So we just see the double side of that. Seeing this production makes me wonder how easy you think in general terms, not simply only with this Tosca, but with other, your experience elsewhere in opera houses, how easy it is to rethink a piece that many of us have grown up with or many of us think we know pretty well. Rethink it for an audience now in the present tense. I think, I suppose, in a way, it's it's easy t to come up with a new concept or a new kind of, you know, make a, a sort of drastic concept staging of something. But I, I think to to rethink something in a in a very clear way or a way that facilitates the story is actually very difficult. Um, so I think it, it's probably quite easy to come up with a bold idea for, for a, a change and a big staging, but not necessarily in practice. I mean, it needs to sort of follow through on every level. So if you suddenly decide to set it in whichever period, you know, a different period, that it, it needs to resonate. So I guess it might be... That's a hard question. I'm not quite sure. Um, Yes, I suppose you'd have to, ideally you'd have to have it thought through very carefully before you did any drastic, you know, this is, this is sort of a, a sort of classic staging in many ways, but it's a sort of slightly fragmented version, um, but we haven't done a sort of a rethinking of, of the whole of it. And I would say that's very hard because essentially the places have to be the places and the story has to remain the story. So anything else that you're layering on top, it, you know, is, is sort of over and above that. You know, we'll come to, to the production itself and the design of it later. Thank you very much, Eden. Stay with us because uh, we'll ask audience to ask questions later. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the, our first piece of music. Would you please welcome Suzanne Manuel, who covers the role of Tosca in this production, and Nicholas Ansel Evans. And they're going to perform uh, Tosca's little aria from Act One, My Little House in the Country, the English translation. Would you welcome them both, please? Nicholas, a rare bonus. <laughs>
ancient tombs, aromatic with flowers, the whispers of the night go out from Suzanne and Nicholas, thank you both very much indeed. Um, Suzanne, Tosca, is she simply the traditional demanding diva, foot stamping, sweeping around in wonderful costumes, or is she a truly vulnerable woman who is easily upset and easily uh, led into paths of error and mistake? I think she is the diva, and I think she's all those things wrapped up in one. And um, she's, she sings um, Visidarte, and in this translation, the opening line is, love and music, these I have lived for. And um, so it's, it's all linked up, one without the other. And uh, she has to have that temperament, I think. She feels so passionately about Cavaradossi that she just can't help herself and then the jealousy consumes her and uh, you see this certainly in this production. Where does she find the strength to kill Scarpia? I mean it's an extraordinary act when you think about it coldly when you leave the theatre. She has killed the most frightening man in the whole of Rome. I don't think my take on it is certainly with the direction that we've been given when he um, she, she says that she's going to, you know, give in to him to save Cavradossi because, she, you know, she loves him so much. And I think she truly believes she does. But when she gets to the desk and he's pinning her against the desk and she is terrified, she's repulsed by him and everything that he stands for. And I think it's a moment she sees the knife on the table. It's not something that she's planned. And I think seeing the knife and, you know, when you're consumed with fear and she just grabs the knife and... And there you are, it's done. And, and she knows where to put it, too. Certainly. <laughs> well, I think... In this production. Speaking as a woman, natural instinct is... <laughs> not that I've ever killed anyone. <laughs> in terms of singing this role, um, is the difficulty in the music that Puccini writes, or is the difficulty in trying to realise this immensely complex character dramatically? Um, the, the, the role... 
is so beautifully written and the character is a complicated character. I, I, I shouldn't confess this slightly, but there are ele elements of my own character in Tosca. So <laughs> I feel myself in, in an extension and if you're a passionate person. And so, you know, there are difficulties to overcome, but, you know, it is so beautifully written and, you know, every page is a gem on it. And it just, for me anyway, and I'm sure Claire would feel the same, that you're just sort of carried away with that and... Uh, it's fabulous. Puccini does give you, possibly with the exception of Cavaradossi's last act, Aria, the best music in the piece, don't you think? Oh, oh, um, oh you said all the baritones get the best. Well, I yeah, do. They had the best parts. Uh, they had the best parts. But, oh, but you see, that's where, uh, listening to the opera, when you hear Scarpia's music, the text is saying one thing, and obviously he's not a nice character, but the music when he sings, you know, um, in, in Act Two, well, and in Act One as well, but, you know, particularly in Act Two, it actually is exquisite. And so, I mean, obviously I love part of Tosca, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just all the music is fabulous. You and Nicholas are going to now, I think, perform a second piece. What are you going to do next? Um, well, we couldn't come and not do Visidate or um, Love and Music. <clears throat> Thank you, Nicholas. Oh, oh, oh. 
Thank you both very much indeed. And I'm choked with emotion, that's all. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, visidate, uh, uh, love and music. Um, Nicholas, the last time we talked, you were working on Castor and Pollux oh, gosh, with yes. the company. Um, <laughs> couldn't be more different than what no. you're doing now. Oh, that's the fun of the job. <laughs> um, what is it that makes Puccini so quite extraordinary? Oh, gosh, so much. He's obviously an incomparable writer for voice. There's no question that's the most obvious thing. He's also the most amazing orchestrator. The subtlety and uh, finesse of his orchestration has never ceased to amaze me. And every day I look in the score and I find new colours, new, new thoughts so original there's nothing like it and it imparts a great clarity which is a marvelous counterpoint to the incredible emotion so as a as an artist he has a great control and um rigor he's spent a long time composing this it's not just something that he tossed off the great, great clarity, which is the counterpoint of this incredible emotional vibrancy. And that's why it's, it's so successful and why it just continues to live in the repertoire, I think. The other extraordinary thing about this music is hear two bars and you know unmistakably yes. it is Puccini. Absol and which opera as well. Yes. yes. So, so just, can you say a little bit about that? Why it is it's instantly recognised and why the world he creates in sound for each of these plays is so distinct? It's amazing, isn't it? It's true of all great opera composers. Not only do you recognise them but instantaneously within two bars, but you know which opera it is and which act it is. You... Um, uh, he does use motifs, but he uses them in his own way. Um, the sound world is totally distinctive for the reasons I've said. Um, each of the characters has different kinds of music. Um, yeah, that's yeah, Let's talk a little bit about the motifs. I mean, yeah. we think about motifs, we think about light motifs, yes. we think about Wagner, um, you know, the kind of Wizard of Bayreuth. Does Puccini use them in the same kind of way to kind of weave an orchestral texture? Or are they a way of simply helping us understand where we are in the drama, commenting perhaps ironically on what's happening? I think all those things, and at different points, they, they, they work in slightly different ways. Um, the... They tend to be melodic uh, rather than harmonic um, in Puccini, I think. Um, yes, I mean, I, when I hear it, I don't think of it as being a motivic-led composition, um, important though they are. I, I do just listen the whole time to the colours. I mean, one of the great things about the pit in this opera house is you can really hear the orchestra. And, uh, you know, dare I say it, possibly uh, more clearly sometimes than down the road. And... Um, <laughs> yes, you can say that, and the rest of us would. Simply because of the, the acoustics of, of the theatre, that we're just what we've inherited. And just listen tonight, as well as the amazing singing, listen to the colours from the pit. It's, what a composer. The other thing that, that constantly takes me by surprise is his amazing sure foot when it comes to drama. I mean, the opening of Act yes. Three yes. and the Bells of Rome is, is, is a kind of dramatic masterstroke. We know what's going to happen, we know, we've always known, yeah. and yet we're made to wait, and yes. we hear Rome waking up. Absolutely. His gift is a theatrical writer. To totally, uh, he totally understood the theatre, and, uh, and, um, 
as you say, there's an emotional colour in each chord. Uh, I mean, Wagner has it too, but this is totally different. Yeah. I began by saying, because I couldn't resist it, that Joseph Kernan, who is still, I notice, alive and writing, Joseph Kernan once described this opera in uh, opera's drama as a shabby little shocker. We, we, no one believes that anymore, do they? Even when it was intellectually fashionable in Northern Europe to say that, um, people never stopped coming to it and enjoying it. I think that speaks its own story. Yeah. Members of the audience, we can ask questions too of our, of our guests, Ansel, uh, Nicholas and, and Suzanne. There's a roving microphone. If you'd like to ask questions about anything they've said or things that have occurred to you, please put up your hand and we'll catch you with the roving mic. And I know we're all going to be wonderfully English and sit on our hands and not ask questions. So we could always play grandmother's footsteps and turn our backs on you and you could creep up on us. Who'd like to ask a question? A question in the front row. Nicholas, could you tell us a little bit more about your role here and what you do? Because I don't right, always so I, know I'm that people I'm a full-time member of the music staff. I work both as a repetiteur, playing piano, coaching singers, playing piano for rehearsals, and an assistant conductor. I, I've assisted Stephen Lord on this, um, as I indeed insisted him on his last uh, visits here. Um, I've conducted the cover cast rehearsals. I've done all the scheduling for the music. Um, you keep an eye out on things. You listen to um, re re the orchestral uh, and stage rehearsals, take notes, balance. Yes, it's my fault. Um, the, um, do, do, there's, there's quite a lot of offstage conducting in this, bells of various kinds, can, band, uh, chorus. Um, yes, it's, it's, sometimes you feel a bit like a secretary, but um, it, the rewards are wonderful. <laughs> Do we have another question? Yes, at the very back. The microphone will find its way to you. It comes. Um, I'm very interested in the other side of that, which is the being an assistant director. Mm -hmm. um, when you're recreating someone else's production, mm -hmm. How far can you take that? Are you limited to exactly and precisely what the original director uh, uh, did? Mm -hmm. Or do you find when you've got new casting that you can actually extend that? How limiting an experience is it? Well, I mean, the version we've just worked on, which is with the covers, we just finished yesterday working with lovely Suzanne and, and the rest of the covers. You're generally, you have to keep people in the same space that affects the other characters. So if they were to go on, that they wouldn't adjust any of the staging that would sort of have a knock-on effect to any of the other characters. So you have to be very careful. If people need to be in a specific place at a specific time for a specific action to take place, then that must be recreated. Otherwise, you might sort of cause all sorts of chaos. And the other thing often to look out for, sort of, it might feel a bit more boring, but just to look out for moments where they're lit and moments where they're not lit. So you have to be really careful with things like that. Or particularly moments of interaction between characters, just so, so the other person is getting a version of the original, so they know what to work with. So something doesn't throw them. So I think it's one of those things you have to be very, very careful with. Um, I think reviving somebody else's production um, 
is, is perhaps a slightly different thing where you could go back to the original director and say, well, we're thinking of adjusting this or this doesn't work for a certain person. What would you think about that? So there you might have room for a bit more flexibility. But I think the, the case has to be always looking practically at what happens with them and another character who they'll come across on stage. So I think you just have to be, care be careful. So with, with care. But again, I think um, sometimes things don't work for another person. So you have to make it work for them, for their bodies, for their voices. So they're, they're feeling comfortable as well. You don't want anyone sort of distorted and, you know, doing forwards roles while singing if they don't feel comfortable with that or, you know, that sort of thing. Nina, Nina, thank you. There'll be a chance to ask Nina more questions later. In the meantime, special thanks to Suzanne Manuel and Nicholas Ansel Adams for making the music theme. Thank you very much. For both of you. In a moment... In a moment, our last guest. Puccini had seen Sardou's melodrama La Tosca at least twice, once in Milan and once in Turin. And on the 7th of May, 1889, he wrote to his publisher, Giulio Ricordi, begging him to get Sardou's permission for the work to be made into an opera. He wrote, I see in this Tosca the opera I need, with no overblown proportions, no elaborate spectacle, nor will it call for the usual excessive amount of music. Ricordi's agent in Paris eventually persuaded the playwright who had in fact hoped that a French composer might be interested in making it into opera to allow Puccini to write his work. Uh, and he assigned, uh, recording the librettist Luigi Illica to write a scenario for it to be adapted. In 1891, however, Illica advised Puccini against the project, most likely, we think, because he felt the play could not be successfully adapted into a musical form. In the meantime, Sardou was beginning to stir in Paris, uh, indicating his unease about entrusting what was now his most successful play to date to the as yet unproven opera composer Puccini, whose music he made quite plain he didn't like, and rather naturally Puccini took offence about that. So Puccini withdrew from the agreement and recording, always the opportunistic publisher, then assigned the project, having bought it, to another composer called Alberto Franchetti. Puccini now changed his mind again. And Puccini brought pressure on Ricordi and eventually, in a rather complicated arrangement, Franchetti was persuaded to yield the libretto or the project back to Puccini. And another name is added to the project, that of Giuseppe Giacosa, another playwright who's brought in by Ricordi and Puccini to help polish the verses. Giacosa and Puccini repeatedly clashed over the need to reduce and to simplify Sardou's play with Giacosa feeling that Puccini really didn't want to finish the project. He had no interest in getting to the end. Um, it really does seem, I think, sometimes that Puccini couldn't produce his best work without fighting his librettis every inch of the way. In the end, anyway, it took a total of four years to turn the play into an opera, and Illica condemned Puccini at the end of this process for treating his librettis, as he said, like stagehands. However, all was well that almost ended well. By December 1899, Tosca was in rehearsal at a theatre in Rome. Because of the Roman setting of the opera, Ricordi had arranged that the premiere should indeed be in Rome. The first night at last was not the triumph that Puccini had opened for. But then the work really took off and began to travel on both sides of the Atlantic and to Australia and into the Far East. And by 1914, Tosca had been performed in more than 50 cities around the globe. Well, we're joined now by Nicholas Sperling, our last guest this evening, who's the production manager for this revival of Tosca. Will you please welcome Nicholas Sperling? 
Nicholas, when did you get involved in this in this Tosca? Um, I got involved in the original production. So this that was about 18 months ago in May 2010 when the production opened originally here at the Coliseum. I got involved about 18 months again before that. Um, that was the first time I was allowed to see uh, this fantastic model box next to me. And what did you think when you saw this model box? Uh, my mouth fell open and I just went, wow, how are we going to do this? Um, and never mind the, the financial side of things, but it was purely on my, uh, my instinct is how are we going to logistically and space-wise make this three-act opera work, um, requiring a different set for every act. So your job is what, to take this model box, which will, and there'll be a different model for each act? Yes. Um, very simplistically, my job is to take the model and make it bigger. Um, and I hope that uh, what you will see tonight is literally, if you, um, I know that my job has been done well if you can look at the model and then look at what's on stage and go, yes, that is what the model looked like. Okay, so you cut the model up, says so yes. What do you actually do? Uh, what do I actually do? Um, I am sort of an assistant to the designer um, in that uh, together with the designer, I will go out, um, source some materials, uh, we'll start getting samples in of, um, of finishes of the set, um, painters will come in, I will contract painters um, to make samples of the various elements and then we'll go out and find a workshop together uh, who will then eventually actually build the whole set. Um, I'm then responsible for the financial side, I get given a budget to, and then make sure that we deliver the set within budget, within the time constraints and then very importantly to the artistic and creative levels set out by the creative team. And as you were doing this, did problems emerge about translating this wonderful uh, Philip Schersman's design into sets? Um, not really. Um, honestly, um, the set is a pretty standard set um, when you look at it on the surface. Um, we we'll must probably speak about that a bit later, but the sort of the multi-layered aspect of the design itself. Um, but um, Frank Schlossmann, being a very um, experienced theatre designer, knew exactly what he was giving me um, when he said, go and make this happen. Um, so it was actually a very straightforward process, a very big process, uh, but very much in the tradition of theatre set building. To what extent is the basic shape one that continues through all three acts. Yes, so that's, that really is sort of um, the multi-layered aspect of the set design. I mean, I might um, just say we're watching it on, on the monitor here, in fact, production still, so you can see what this actually looks like when it's performed. Exactly, so what's on the monitor at the moment is a production photo of Act One, um, which reflects what is in the model box. Um, so you'll be able to see uh, the pillars back, you know, it's, it's supposed to be, this is just the, it's the model box without actors, basically. Uh, and on the mon monitor, it's uh, as in the performance. Um, Nina spoke about um, the, the opera being set in three specific locations, um, and that also very much um, is obviously in the design and sets what the designer can do. Uh, what I think Frank really achieved in this design in the multi-layers um, is that when you look at the initial picture on stage. Um, for instance, in Act One, the Cathedral of San Andrea, um, 
we'll look at it and go, yes, that is the cathedral, but just look at it a bit further um, and you'll immediately see there are some things not quite right. Uh, something you will not find in a church, if you look at uh, the model, is the circular shape at the back of the stage. And that circular shape comes back in every act. Um, in my discussions with Frank, um, I got to learn that his idea behind that was it's representing not only what we will see in Act 3 and the battlements of the Castel Sant'Angelo, but also the circular path of Tosca's journey, um, which is already started on the very first note of the opera. Um, immediately, the curtain rises, the lights go on, and you see the circular shape. And that is a foreboding of what will come in Act 3. And it's there in the background in Act 1. In Act 2, it's even more prominent in Scarpia's apartment. And Act 3, you will see tonight, is played out on a, on a well, we called it the half pipe. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is literally, it is the battlements of Saint, uh, Castel Sant'Angelo on its side. And within that circular shape, all the action takes place in Act 3. But something also, I don't think we should give away too much, but something rather remarkable also happens in Act 3 that changes perhaps our sense of uh, not only place, but what this piece is about, doesn't it? The design, in a way, takes us, you know, beyond simply the everyday Rome in 1800. Exactly. And unfortunately, yes, I, I don't want to spoil uh, too, too much uh, for the audience this evening. Um, yes, um, it, it's... I, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I just... You may it, not it, say it, it, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> right. nothing we'll, you can we'll say. We'll zip our lips up. <laughs> um, but it was important that we begin in 1800. I mean, this is a production that, that Frank uh, and the whole production team, and obviously Catherine Malfitano, felt was we had to begin at the very date in 1800 when the Battle of Marengo is being fought. Yes, indeed. Um, and again, that shows in the actual design, in, in the basic design of the production. It's very much rooted in that style, uh, not only on the set side, but also uh, Gideon Davies' costume designs are very much rooted in the 1800s. And again, Frank has tried to, just by adding small details to the set and the whole design, to just actually just throw us off balance so that we keep remaining, we remain interested in what is going on on stage. It's not purely realistic set. There is this added perspective, which we can also see back in the back cloth of Act One, uh, which we see in the model box at the moment, which is the actual cathedral image, but then pulled into perspective. Um, and I'd like to invite any of the audience members after the talk to come up to the model and actually have a closer look. Um, and you'll see that back in large format uh, in tonight's performance. D deeply disorientating, both in the box and, ladies and gentlemen, on stage. Um, time, of course, is always racing. Um, uh, Nicholas, come back and join us on, 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 on what I think of as the, kind of the widow's bench. Um, we've time for a few last questions before we have to go. Would anyone like to ask questions of any of our, our noble guests this evening? Another question at the back. Well, back to the obsession with revivals. <laughs> what do you use as your template? Um, are they filmed? Is the original filmed? Or how do you record what um, 
in this in this instance. Um, well, Catherine, she supervised the revival herself, but generally ah. what she did was she. I think she had two DVDs or a DVD certainly of the dress rehearsal from last time that she would watch again and again and again. And she had very much in mind. She remembered very well the original staging and sort of questioned her own decisions from the time before. So she would often, after a rehearsal, go home, watch through the DVD part of the bit that we were going to rehearse the following day. So she'd be really well prepared. So for my part, I was sort of on catch up because I'd, I saw the premiere when it was done 18 months ago um, and that was the first I'd seen of it. So I had to really get up to speed by watching the DVD several times and just, just for reference. And then obviously when there were changes, we just facilitated that. So you regularly uh, record your... Yes, but only for sort of in for in-house, for in-house reference for for a revival, for instance, or yeah. Right. Okay. And you've got your in-house company that do that. I think for we you. should yes. ask someone else if they like to ask a question. May we? <laughs> yes, the gentleman in front of you. you Hold up, the microphone's coming. How would you rate the the poetry of the English version compared oh. to the original? <laughs> Um, oh, translations are always a vexed issue, but um, uh, this, of course, is a different translation from the translation by Amanda Holden that was employed in the previous Tosca here by David McVicker, uh, David McVicker's production. Um, so um, it was felt that, um, g given the setting, that Edmund Tracy's um, translation would be more appropriate. Um, is it, does that answer your question? No. Not really. I'm just interested with, well, let, in a way, do, do, mean, do you the, prefer the, to to, the, to go in English or the original uh, oh, version? I see. Okay, right. Well, I can answer that, I think. Yeah, go for yeah. it. <laughs> in, in that, well, because I have to sing it. <laughs> so I feel that um, when you sing it in the original language, obviously the composer and, you know, and the text are, you know, they're like that. And so when singing it in English, no matter how lovely the text is, and it's great for audiences when you don't speak Italian or French to hear the English um, words, but it is very difficult as a singer because English is actually very difficult to sing in. And um, obviously it wasn't written for the English language. And so you have to find a way round the English text, elongating vowels that you wouldn't necessarily do in your normal spoken... I mean, I'm Cornish, so one of the... I can't believe I'm going to say this to you, but one of the lines when I was working with my singing teacher was, Tosca's love burns with ardent love. Because I'm Cornish, I would say, Tosca's love burns with ardent love. <laughs> I don't really talk like that all the time. But, you know, you have to find a way around it. So, you you know, there's 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 negatives and positives in in doing both. That's right. Is Can that I just thing? add one thing, which is I'd love to say this to all you while you're here, <laughs> is that one of the things about doing it in English is people quite rightly expect to understand the text. Now, this affects other things like orchestral balance. As soon as the, the orchestra is too loud, people say, oh, really notice, you know, because you want to hear the words. If you are if you don't know the language very well in which it's being sung and you're following it on the surtitles, orchestral balance is not such an issue. And um, uh, we work very hard in here to try and get that. It's not e always easy, though. We have time for one more question in the front row here. The microphone's on its way. It's coming. <laughs> Can you tell me what your budget was, whether you stayed within budget and whether you're on time? <laughs> the, but there's Please. always an accountant in the audience, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not allowed to say what the budget was. Can you was. give us an estimate? 
Ooh, and, and, a lot and, of money, a bag of a gold. Lot of money. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that afterwards. <laughs> 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 did, did you stay within budget? Um, I pride myself on staying within budget, and I believe I was within £1,000 of the budget. And you delivered on time. Yes, absolutely. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think a round of applause, Nicholas, for that, really. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Firstly, to all of you for being here this evening and being an attentive and thoughtful audience, as always, and above all, to our four guests this evening. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>